Good morning. I'm going to start by telling you who I am in case you don't know. <laughs> I'm Maureen Small. I happen to work in the church office as the uh, church secretary or I guess office administrator. Um, but every so often, Marlo gives me the privilege of preaching here at the church. I do have a Bible college degree in case you just, you know, worry about where my theology is. Um, but yeah, I do have a bachelor's degree in theology. It sounds really fancy, but really it was just a chance to go to a, to a Christian college and meet my husband. So bridal, bridal college, otherwise Bible college, otherwise known as bridal college, that, yeah. But somewhere in there, I did learn to love to study the word of God and uh, use the gifts he's given me to not be afraid to stand up here and speak to you. <laughs> I know that's hard for some of you. And for me, I recognize that that is a gift that God has given, and I am privileged to use that for him uh, as I'm given that opportunity. But having said all of that, I feel like Paul, in the, in the epistles, he gave this whole list of, look, I've done this, and I am this, and I am that, and I am that. He was trying to prove his point to people that despite all the background he had and the good stuff, all he really had, all that really mattered was Jesus in his life and his surrender of his life to Jesus. And I feel like that as I read off a list of, you know, well, I, I didn't qualify to stand here and speak according to human standards, um, but that doesn't make me a, a better Christian because of things I do. Do you ever feel like it's hard to be a good Christian? That somehow you're not reading your Bible enough. You're, you're not praying enough. You're not serving in the church or volunteering in the community enough. And then you hear other Christians talk about their great devotional time with God when God spoke to them. And you're like, well, um, I found it really hard to find five minutes to really pray this today because the kids were driving me crazy. And you think there's people who are traveling around the world and going on, on humanitarian missions and people who are speaking to their neighbors about Jesus. And you feel like, I am just not measuring up here. Or maybe you are the person who is doing all kinds of good things. You are trying very hard to do good works and to just be kind and do all those things so that, that God will be pleased with you. You can make yourself right with God. And you're hoping that all the good things that you do will outweigh all the bad things you've done. Not that you're murdering people or anything like that, although God can forgive that also. But we all know. We have thoughts we think that are not the things we'd like to think about. We all have things that come out of our mouth that we wish we hadn't said, and occasionally we do things we wish we hadn't done. And so you're trying to do enough good to outweigh the bad in your life so that, that you can be accepted by God and, and hopefully make it to heaven. Well, today we're going to acknowledge that we might have some heart issues to deal with, things that need to come into alignment with God's truth. We're going to learn how to replace our striving to do good with freedom in Jesus and truth from the Bible. And we're going to learn how to walk in that, that freedom by living with the truth of God's word. Well, our text for today is still in our Galatians series, and it's Galatians 4, 21 to 31. But before we get into that, I need to tell you a story. So once upon a time, because all good stories start with that, there was a man named Abraham. He lived about 2000 BC, a very long time ago. And he lived in the area of the world that is now Iraq. Just to give you some perspective, I'd like to know where these biblical place names are in relation to where countries are today, because it helps him figure things out. 
So he lived in what is now Iraq. At that time, there was a lot of gods being worshipped in there, in that area. But one day, the one true God, the God that you and I worship here today, spoke to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I want you to leave this land and go to a land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to make you famous and make you a blessing to other people. That was a covenant, a promise that God made to Abraham, a covenant, we call it, that he established with him. I will do this for you. Abraham believed God, took his wife Sarah, and started walking west, the west, young man. And he headed west until he got to the land of Canaan. What is the land of Canaan called today? Anybody? Israel. Thank you. For the other Bible scholar, one of the other Bible scholars sitting here in the front row. <laughs> Israel. When you hear the land of Canaan in the Old Testament, it's talking about what we see today as the nation of Israel. So that's where he ended up. He wandered around in, in Israel and into Egypt and back for a few years, and during that time, God reestablished this promise, this covenant with him. At one point, Abraham said to God, how is this promise of me being the father of any nations ever going to come true? Because I don't have a son. I have no heir. And in fact, when I die, it'll just be my servant who inherits everything. God's answer was to take him outside and say, look up into the sky. Do you see all the stars? If you can count those, that's how many descendants you will have. So Abraham continued to believe God. Well, time went on, Abraham and Sarah passed the time where naturally you would be able to conceive a child, and Sarah grew quite despondent, thinking this promise is never going to come true, at least not the way they thought it would through them having a child together. So she hatched a plan, and let me say, Abraham willingly went along with it. So she said, I will give you my servant girl, Hagar. You sleep with her, conceive a son, then you will have a son to carry on the name and, and be the, 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 you know, fulfill this promise, this covenant that God gave us. Now, that sounds really weird to us, but apparently there was, this was somehow normal back then. A couple generations, oh, wait, spoiler alert. Abraham has a son because his grandson then fathered 12 sons with a combination of two wives and a servant from each of those wives. And those 12 sons became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel that you hear about all the time. So apparently this was somewhat normal behavior back in the day. So indeed, Abraham slept with Hagar. Hagar had a child. His name was Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the son of God's promise. Sarah and Abraham had gotten ahead of God decided that, that he, they'd lost faith in his promise and took matters into their own hand, hands and created something that was not what God had uh, said he was going to do. He wasn't the son of the promise. But about 13 years after Ishmael was born, the Lord appeared to Abraham again, reestablished his covenant and said, you will have a son with Sarah, and that is the son of my promise. That is a son through whom my promises will be fulfilled. And in fact, within the next year, this son will be born. So sure enough, it happened. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old when Isaac was born. So truly a miracle from God to fulfill his promise. They named the little guy Isaac. When he was three years old, Sarah caught Ishmael, the much older half-brother, mocking him, teasing him, persecuting little Isaac. She was livid. 
She went to Abraham and she said, get rid of that slave woman and her son. I will not have that slave son sharing in the inheritance with my son. And I love what it says in the NLT. Her very last line is, I will not have it. And it's like, yes, she's not having any of that, none of that. So Abraham was very sad because he did love both of his sons. But God assured him that Ishmael would also be blessed by him and would go on to become the father of a great nation. Anybody know what great group of people or nation Ishmael became the father of? Go ahead, if you think you know. Arabs, I heard it over there somewhere. Yes, Ishmael, his descendants became the Arab people of the world, and Isaac's descendants became the Jewish people, which might explain a little bit of the 4,000-year-old conflict between the Arabs and the Jews. A little history lesson for you there. Maybe, you know, the Bible is a history book too, so it puts things in perspective for us sometimes. So Abraham went ahead and sent Hagar and Ishmael away out into the desert, but God looked after them, took care of them. Ishmael grew up and yes, indeed became a great nation as well, a father of a great group of people. All right, so this is the background that we needed to know in order to understand what Paul is saying in his letter to the Galatians in Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Galatia was a region that is in present day Turkey and Galatians refers to a number of churches in that region. So this was a letter that Paul wrote to them, and they passed it around from church to church to read and understand what he had to say. Paul and his, his buddy Barnabas had gone to Galatia in that region a few years before. He had preached to them the gospel of Jesus. Now, gospel means good news. So he's telling them the good news, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. He raised again from the dead in three days, and all they have to do to be right with God is to believe that and accept that forgiveness for their sins through the blood of Jesus on the cross. This is what Paul and Barnabas taught to the people of Galatia. And the people of Galatia received that eagerly. They were so happy. Why? Because they'd been living under the law. Now, the law was something, maybe we go back to Abraham here, his descendants, down the line about a thousand years after Abraham, came a man named Moses. And Moses was the one to whom God gave the law. This was a list of rules and regulations and things that the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, were to follow in order to be right with God. And these rules were given to them at a place called Mount Sinai. And you need to remember that because it shows up in Galatians again. So Mount Sinai, it'll be on the quiz later. So this is what the law was. And for these hundreds of years now, the Jewish people had been following this list of rules trying to make themselves right with God. The Galatians were thrilled to hear they no longer had to perform sacrifices all the time. They didn't have to follow all these rules and regulations, some of which had been man-made after God gave the law. Then over the time, leaders had added, and Jewish leaders had added in their own, you must do this and you can't do that kind of things. And so they accepted by faith that Jesus was the only way to be forgiven for their sins and made right with God. And then disaster struck. After Paul and Barnabas left from preaching that, along came some people that preached a different gospel to them. Now, some of these people who came in, there were Jewish people who, some of them probably did have faith in Jesus initially, but got off track. Some of them may have never taken the step of having faith in Jesus. They were just still following Jewish laws. But they came together and they said, it's all well and good that you believe that Jesus is, is the one who can forgive your sins, but you can't be right with God unless you keep following these Jewish laws. 
You have to keep doing that. Well, when Paul heard about this, this is when he wrote the letter to the Galatian churches. And the whole point of the book of Galatians is to say, no, stop it. That's not true. Jesus is enough. Jesus alone is the way to be right with God. You don't need to keep following all these laws. Stop letting people put that on you. So there's the background for how we get to today's passage, Galatians 4. This is Paul using the illustration that we talked about of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael to illustrate his point in talking to the Galatians. So let's read Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Oh, and by the way, I love the sarcasm that Paul starts this with. Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where the people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia, because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, she represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman, and she is our mother. As Isaiah said, Rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. Break into joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. But you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law, just like Ishmael, the child born of human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. But what do the scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. Well, let's talk about some of the symbolism in this passage. Now, we already know about Sarah and Hagar, and we talked about Mount Sinai being the place where the law was given to Moses and for the people of Israel. Isaiah quotes, uh, sorry, Paul quotes Isaiah 54.1 in verse 27. Now that's the verse about rejoice, O childless woman. It's, when Isaiah wrote this, it was a prophetic writing talking about after the Jews were exiled from Jerusalem and from the land of Israel because they were disobedient to God, there was the promise that they would come back one day and repopulate it. Now this all happened years and years and years before Paul wrote this. They were back in Jerusalem by now. When they came back to Jerusalem, there would be a great time of rejoicing, of repopulating this, this city of Jerusalem. Well, Paul sees that there is, there is significance in this verse that refers to Jesus as well, not just to the Old Testament exile. Throughout the Bible, Jerusalem often refers not just to the physical Jerusalem, the actual city that still exists today, in the nation of Israel. But Jerusalem, the Bible talks about a new Jerusalem that is our heavenly home. So this is another reference to heaven. And so this is where we get the, the heavenly Jerusalem that is mentioned here in Galatians. 
Paul understands that not only was there rejoicing when people came back to the earthly Jerusalem, but when we come into faith in Jesus Christ, and we have the promise of heaven, the new Jerusalem, that there will be growth and prosperity and new life breathed into us and breathed into the church as a whole, all Christians, all believers in Jesus, and that it would grow and flourish miraculously. So now we have Hagar equals slave, equals Old Testament covenant at Mount Sinai, equals law. Okay? Spiritual children of Hagar's son, Ishmael, are obligated to the law. They have to follow the law. Let's talk for a minute. How does the law enslave us? Well, the law is a list of rules that they were made to file, file, that's follow, in order to be right with God. That was the point of the law. But today, rule-keeping traps us in this cycle, just as it did back then, of trying to do good and failing, or trying harder to do better and failing, trying again to keep those rules and always breaking them somehow. You see how you become a slave to that cycle? Always trying harder, failing, trying harder, failing. That's what happens when you follow a list of do's and don'ts and rules. That's how the law enslaved people. But Sarah, Sarah equals freedom, equals new covenant, equals Jerusalem, equals grace. Spiritual children of Sarah's son Isaac are acceptable to God because of faith, not because of the rules they keep. Now Paul ends the passage quoting Genesis 21.10, get rid of the slave woman and her son because they're not going to share an inheritance with the the son of the freeborn woman, that part. The law and grace, bondage and freedom, cannot coexist together. The law that causes slavery must be done away with. And that's why Jesus came, to fulfill that law, to fulfill all the requirements of that law so that we no longer have to follow a list of rules and do's and don'ts. We are not slaves. We are sons and daughters of God. A man named Curtis Vaughn in his commentary in Galatians says, The idea is that those who are the people of faith belong not to a community that is in bondage to legal statutes, but to a community whose relation to God is that of sons and heirs. Do not live like a slave when you are a son. The summary is this, and not the summary of my whole sermon, sorry, you got about 10 minutes to go. Just a summary of the heart we've talked about so far. You can only have your sins forgiven and be made right with God by simple faith in Jesus, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. The blood that he shed on the cross was to forgive you for your sins so that no more blood sacrifices would have to be made such as the old law required. There's no good works that you can do that will earn you a place in heaven. There's no good works you can do that will make you more acceptable and more pleasing to God, even if you have accepted Jesus as your one and only means of salvation and being right with God. Doing more good works won't make God love you anymore. The false teachers who infiltrated that Galatian church were trying to add a list of do's and don'ts to the grace that the Galatians had experienced through Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, they were finally free from having to follow this list of do's and don'ts that they thought would make them right with God. 
Jesus offered them grace that made them right with God through no effort of their own. There's a reason people outside the church often look at Christianity as a bunch of rules to follow, a list of do's and don'ts, and thou shalt nots. There are churches out there, and individuals, and sometimes our own wrong thoughts, that want to pull us back into slavery, to a list of things to do and rules to follow, instead of accepting that we can't earn our salvation, we can't make God like us more, by having obedience to rules. We can't get a better standing with God if we just keep trying to do good works. Listen to this. You can't make God love you more by being good. And you can't make God love you less by being bad. It's not based on our behavior. Self-effort leads to bondage. It leads to legalism. And when we ultimately... Uh, fail at keeping all those rules that we legalistically set up, it leads us back to self-loathing and back to self-effort, the never-ending cycle of promising to do better and failing and trying harder and failing. It keeps us in slavery to that never-ending cycle of never measuring up. But God's grace leads us to freedom. In God's grace, we realize that it's okay that we're never going to measure up. He doesn't expect us to. He has no expectations that we're going to ever be good enough for him and good enough to get into heaven. He sets us free from that by sending Jesus instead. We don't need to be defeated by that. Oh, no, I'm, I can never be good enough to make it to heaven. You can't. But Jesus, Jesus is the way to heaven, and it's through simple faith in him. See, once we come to that point of grace, we can relax and we can enjoy a relationship with God. My husband has often said that rules without relationship equals rebellion. It's good child-rearing advice if you give your kids a long list of rules to follow in high expectations, but you don't take time to build a loving relationship with them that allows for grace and forgiveness in that relationship then they're likely, more likely to rebel. And it's the same is true in our relationship with God. If we are simply trying to follow a list of rules instead of developing a loving relationship with God, then we are in rebellion against God. He wants relationship, not rules. An author named Eric Dirksen says in his book, Set Free, hardness of heart, unforgiveness, and unbending standards are products of the law and evidence of slavery. But grace is of the promise and is exceedingly more fruitful than the law. This is why God continually calls us to gentleness, love, and compassion. This is why forgiving one another is so necessary and why unforgiveness is so unbecoming of a child of God. There is no option in the Christian faith. Faith, love, and a new creation triumph over law-keeping, hardness of heart, and the old man. Are you walking in the spirit, or are you walking in the flesh? Abraham had a promise that God was going to do something for him. Give him an heir that would be born to fulfill the promise. 
But he got impatient, so he did something about it. Our doing, if done with the wrong motives, for the wrong reasons, leads to bondage. If we think we're going to be able to receive God's forgiveness by virtue of our doing. Some of you have heard this illustration before, but it's always good to have a refresher. For some of you, this may be new. But it's an illustration of what it means to be a Christian, the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion is spelled D-O, do. Trying to do enough good to please God and be accepted by him. But we can never be sure if we've done enough. How much is enough to please God? And the Bible tells us that it will never be enough. Our good will never be enough to please God. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. Everything that needed to be done for us to be accepted by God was done through the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. Jesus did for us what we could never do. He lived the perfect life. And on the cross, he paid for all of our sins with his death. It's not enough to simply know that in your head. There's the part where each of us has to come to a point where we accept that what Jesus did on the cross, he did for us, each one, individually, for me. Jesus died to forgive my sins. I have no way to save myself. I need Jesus and Jesus alone to save me from my sins and to make me right with God. Jesus is the only way to be right with God. Here's something to think on. Christianity is the only religion in which your eternity is secured without having to do good works to get there. Christianity is the only religion in which your security, eternity secure, eternal security is, is there without you having to do good works to get there. The only one of all religions. But even within Christianity... As we read in Galatians, there are people who try to add rules and good works and that kind of thing to what Christ has already done. Don't let anyone put that on you. And be careful that you don't put that on other people. A list of your own do's and don'ts and preconceived ideas of what's right or wrong for a Christian. Don't put that on somebody else's Christian walk. There was a time in my Christian life where I thought that my security in Christ depended on my behavior. If I was good, then he would be more pleased, and if I was bad, he would not. But sometimes the rules of what was good and bad were very confusing and not at all out of the Bible. There was a time when it was a sin for me to wear pants to church. Anyone else old enough to remember? Mm-hmm. You didn't wear pants to church if you were a girl. There was, divorce was a sin. Drinking alcohol was a sin. Dancing was a sin. Going to movies was a sin. My mother said that when she was growing up, going to the bowling alley or the skating rink was a sin. Now, I understand what people were trying to do with their laying all these rules on people. They were trying to get us to be holy, to establish a, a standard of conduct that was holy. But here's the thing. Holiness is not achieved through our behavior, through our actions, the things we do or don't do. Do not make us holier. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus came to become our righteousness and our holiness. 
Our righteousness, our holiness comes from Jesus living in us. The spirit of Jesus in us is what makes us holy and righteous. It is not the things we do that bring that holiness about. It's the relationship with God. It's the tender heart that is surrendered to God's will and desires to please him. Will that affect the choices we make? Yes, it ought to. And yes, the Bible says that Christians will be known by their fruit, by what you see. You should be able to see that there's a difference in a Christian. But that difference comes from a loving attitude. The fruits of the Spirit are also in the book of Galatians. I think we get to them in a week or two. Those, that, that is the measure of holiness. And it's a fruit. It grows. It's not something you can make happen. It comes out of relationship with Jesus Christ and the fruit grows naturally out of that. So I understand they were trying to equate holiness with behavior, but that's not what the Bible teaches. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. We can add nothing to that. But does that mean that we can trust in Jesus and just go on living a selfish life, do whatever we want to do? Well, James 2, 17 and 26 say, faith by itself isn't enough. Didn't I just say faith is all? It's enough? There's nothing more? Let's read on. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without works. So what's the deal? I thought that we didn't need good works in addition to our faith. Well, here's the thing. Those good works won't save you, but they will show the evidence that you are saved. It's a matter of putting the cart before the horse. You can't do the good works in order to build faith, but faith, when it comes first, produces the good works. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says, all scripture is inspired by God and it's useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. That is the purpose of the word of God. One of the purposes, it teaches, it corrects us, it helps us, guides us on the right path so that we will produce good works that come out of faith. We have the Bible to show us truth. And when our minds lead us astray with thoughts that we need to do more or follow some rules to be right with God, we need to counteract that with truth from the word of God. This is how we have victory. This is how we walk in freedom. This is how we change from the inside out. We live in truth. If you went through soul care, Bible study with this, this is foundation of what they talk about building on a foundation of truth from the Word of God. If you know the Word of God, and you must read your Bible to know that Word of God, if it's confusing, if it's difficult for you, get into a Bible study with other mature Christians who can help and to explain, and together you can share the insight you have and what that Word means so that we can apply it to our lives, change our thoughts to be in line with what the truth of the Word of God is. And so with that understanding, I want to read Ephesians 2, 8 and through 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. 
For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So there it is. We have been created in Christ for a reason, to do good works. The same guy, Paul, who wrote to the Galatians to say, to, to stop, to tell them to stop depending on extra rules to earn favor with God, wrote to the churches in the area of Ephesus to tell them that the reason we became new creatures in Christ is to do good works. Again, got to put them in the right order. Faith first in Jesus alone for the salvation of our sins, followed by good works that will naturally come out of that faith as we walk in relationship with God. God has prepared specific good works in advance for us to do. So here's where the truth of God comes in. When you become overwhelmed with the, I'm not doing enough, I, I'm not measuring up, this person's doing more than me, I don't have time to do what they're doing, so is God displeased with me? Does God it, it, like them better than me because they're able to do more? Stop. It's a daily prayer. In those moments you say, God, what good works have you prepared in advance for me to do today? And let God speak to you. What is it now, today, that you should be doing that he has prepared in advance for you to do? None of this striving and flailing and running around trying to find what is the good things that God wants me to do. He's got something in mind, and he will show you. He will lead you that way as you surrender to him, as you ask him to show you from the truth of his word. I started off by saying, sometimes it's hard to be a good Christian. Here's the truth. There is no such thing as being a good Christian. It doesn't exist. Our only good comes from God. He, he alone, Jesus, God, are good. It's not a matter of being good. Because being a good Christian is not a thing. But doing good works because you're a Christian is. Do you see the difference? It comes from that relationship. Pray it daily. Ask God what he wants you to do and know that he has enabled you to do those works. Through his power, he's enabled you to do exactly what he has prepared for you to do. The Christian life is about acceptance, not performance. That's the bottom line today. You are already accepted by God if you have accepted Jesus as the forgiver of your sin and the leader of your life that's good enough. There's nothing more you can do to make him love you more, and there's nothing you can't do that will make him love you less. You are accepted. Once you put your faith in Jesus, no amount of good works or following rules is going to make you in any better standing or more accepted by God. He has prepared good works for us to do, not because those things will make him happier with us, but because we We'll receive joy when we follow in God's will and do the good works he's prepared in advance for us to do. If you've been trying to live a good life, trying to make sure that the good that you do outweighs the bad that you've done, trying to get right with God through being good so you can make it to heaven, you can stop that now. You don't have to keep doing that. You can never do enough good to get into heaven, and that's not discouraging news. That's great news. Because everything that needed to be done for you, the entrance price 
to get into heaven has already been paid by what Jesus did on the cross. All you need to do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Say it out loud to someone. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins because I need a Savior. I need forgiveness. And I accept that what he did is enough. Perhaps you've made the choice recently or maybe many, many years ago to follow Jesus. You have accepted that he has paid the price for your sins through his death and his resurrection. But you still have been walking in that lie that you have to do something to make him more pleased with you, to continue to be acceptable to him. You have to keep doing good works. Well, it's time to choose to walk in the freedom that he's given you, to walk in the truth of God's word. This says, no, there is nothing more that you need to do or can do to make him more pleased with you because you have done the one thing that pleased him most. You accepted his son that he sent to die for you. That's what he wants from you, is for you to accept his son's death as a salvation for your sins, a forgiveness for your sins. And that is enough. Yes, he has good works for you to do, but those good works are done to show his love to other people so that they too can come to faith in Jesus. Faith first, works secondly. The good works come out of a thankful heart for what God has already done for you. Just each day say, what good works have you prepared in advance for me to do today? I want to give an opportunity to pray here today for two things. First, if you are someone who has never accepted that Jesus' death on the cross was for the forgiveness of your sins, and you want to take that step today to say, I do believe that that's enough, and I don't have to do good things anymore to try to get into heaven. The price is already paid. I want to be able to pray a prayer that you can follow along with and pray that. Secondly, I want to pray for those of us who are, are Christ followers, that we would be set free from that need, that, that desire, that whatever it is to strive to do good, that somehow we don't believe we're fully accepted or pleasing to God because we need to do more. So at this moment, let's, we, we say this, to bow our heads, close our eyes. It's just so that we're not distracted by things around us or people around us. You can talk to God with your eyes open too, but that is perfectly fine. But I'm going to lead in a prayer first for those who want to accept Jesus as their forgiver of their sin and the leader of their life. Let's do that in this moment. Pray these words along with me in your hearts. There's nothing magic about the words. It's just something along these lines. God, I recognize that I am a sinner. I have done bad things. I've thought bad thoughts. I need to be forgiven. And God, I believe that Jesus is the only way to be right with you and be forgiven. I accept that Jesus died on the cross for me to forgive me from my sins so that I can be right with you. And I accept that right now, Jesus, forgive me and be the leader of my life. Amen. And now, God, I pray for those, those of us who have been caught up in this cycle of trying harder and failing and trying to measure up and do good things so that you will be pleased with us. 
God will repent of that. We're sorry. That's not your way. And we thankfully accept and rejoice in the fact that you love and accept us fully through the blood of Jesus because we have accepted that Jesus is the only way for us to be right with you. And so, God, we ask that you would guide our thoughts, that you would remind us, Holy Spirit, to set aside that striving and to focus simply on what is it, God, that today you want us to do, that you've prepared in advance for us to do. Help us to walk in that freedom, we pray in Jesus' name.